Good morning. I have to tell you something that uh, I don't think Satan wants this message preached today. He is doing everything in his power to keep me from standing up here and preaching today. Between my eyeballs not working properly today, my head pounding, and my back spasming, uh, it is just, I don't know what's going on with my body. I told Dave earlier, I think I'm just getting old. Um, But uh, so if you hear me go, oh, ow, during, that's my back. So just ignore that. Um, So this morning we're going to be looking uh, from uh, a part of our reading from this week. Our our reading, as you can see up there, is John chapters 3 through 7, which means next week uh, our reading, or this week I should say, our reading is uh, John chapters 8 through 12. Um, But in this uh, reading, of course, is John 3.16, and we're going to look at that today and hope to, uh, to understand the God that we serve. What is the best gift of love that you've ever received? I think for me, my children is probably a good gift of love. I had heard a story last week from Kip that I wanted to share. Uh, and while this may not fit the category of the best gift of love ever given, um, this probably is up there for Kip. A couple weeks ago, uh, when uh, Levi came home to see Nick off the first time, um, he didn't come back this time, and we didn't get you another cake that I know of. Uh, we had joked, though, we, we said we should get him a cake that says, leave already, um, but we didn't. Um, but uh, when, Nick came, or when, uh, when Levi came back, they wanted to go eat at the new canes that had opened up in front of Meyer. And so Kip, uh, Kip and the family went up there, and um, Kip's not a fan of the, the cane sauce, if you've ever had the cane sauce. Um, and so while they're there, Kip had said, man, I wish I had some barbecue sauce. And Teresa reaches into her purse and pulls out some barbecue sauce that she had packed for Kip because she knew that he was going to want some barbecue sauce. And as Kip was telling this story, Sarah said, man, that's love. So it may be close, but maybe not. But the greatest gift of love that was ever given is the gift of Jesus. Barbecue sauce can't really stack up to that. But when we think about gifts of love... We need to understand what they're up against. The gift of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice is the ultimate gift. It is the greatest gift of love for Jesus to come and take away our sins. And really, that's the gospel in a nutshell. That's it. Have you ever read or heard John 3.16-17 through read and thought, this verse communicates what kind of God that we serve? Have you ever thought that? Look at John 3, 16 and 17. You may not have to. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So our scripture reading this morning gives us some insight, but I want to explore the love of God by first understanding what kind of God He is. Psalm 19, 
verse 1, says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Now, we didn't really plan this, but we sort of touched on this a little bit in our class this morning. But you see, the greatest revelation of God is His creation. Just look outside. Look at the flowers that are popping up. The tulips coming up. The grass becoming greener. And the dandelions messing it all up. But look at God's creation. Look at the night sky, the mountains. If you've ever seen a hummingbird hover. Think about the process of child growth. From, a, from small cells all the way up to an adult. I think honest, logical people don't wonder if there's a God, but rather they wonder, or they ponder about the kind of being that He is. What kind of God is He? And when we look at the complexity and the vastness of the universe, and even the human body itself, and, and the, the, the complexity and the that, that, that's there and the, the understanding that still isn't complete about all of it. When we look at the balance of nature, we can see there's a God. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. I want to read for you a snippet uh, of an article from The Telegraph from from the UK back uh, on my birthday in 2008. My birthday has nothing to do with it, but it's November 24th if you're taking notes. November 24th, 2008, this article was written. Uh, It was about uh, an academic named Dr. Justin Barrett. Okay, Uh, And this was... uh, it's talking about his studies on the natural development cognizance of children and God. So here's, here's the snippet here. Dr. Justin Barrett, a senior researcher at the University of Oxford Center for Anthropology and Mind, claims that young people have a predisposition to believe in a supreme being because they assume that everything in the world was created with a purpose. He says that young children have faith even when they have not been taught about it by family or at school, and argues that even those raised alone on a desert island would come to believe in God. The preponderance of scientific evidence for the past 10 years or so has shown that a lot more seems to be built into the natural development of children's minds than we once thought including a predisposition to see the natural world as designed and purposeful and that some kind of intelligent being is behind that purpose, he told BBC Radio. He continued, he said, If we threw a handful on an island and they raised themselves, I think they would believe in God. In a lecture to be given at the University of Cambridge Faraday Institute, Dr. Barrett cited psychological experiments carried out on children that he says show they instinctively believe that almost everything has been designed with a specific purpose. In one study, six and seven-year-olds who were asked why the first bird existed replied to make music and because it makes the world look nice. Dr. Barrett said there is evidence that even by the age of four, children understand that although some objects are made by humans, the natural world is different. 
He added that this means children are more likely to believe in creationism rather than evolution, despite what they may be told by parents or teachers. Dr. Barrett claimed anthropologists have found that in some cultures, children believe in God even when religious teachings are withheld from them completely. Children's normally and naturally developing minds make them prone to believe in divine creation and intelligent design. In contrast, evolution is unnatural for human minds, relatively difficult to believe. You see, the whole point of Dr. Barrett's focus in this was that children see that there is purpose for the things that we have around us. But the question is, what is the purpose? And God defines our purpose. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Because it takes a lot for a person to get beyond what is natural to their brains. To look around the world and see, as Paul wrote in Romans, that these things have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We can look at the things around us. We can look at the world and we can see God. And as we talked about this morning, Kip mentioned, you know, it starts with a faith. We can say that as an expression of our faith. But even for children, according to these psychological studies, children that don't have a faith, they can look at the world and understand that something else, someone else made those things. Someone other than human beings made those things. A supreme being has been here and continues to watch over his handiwork. He's created undeniable evidence. But what kind of God is he who created this beautiful world? What some people think is this. They think, I doubt there is a God that knows that I am here. And if he did, he wouldn't care about me. I'm so little. Why do I matter? But the thing that these people miss, and this may describe you as well, is that God has shown us who He is. And He's shown us that by sending His Son. As we saw in our scripture reading, 1 John 4, verse 8, God is what? Love. God is love. A few verses later in 1 John 4, verse 16, John writes, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Jesus came, he taught, he communicated, he showed compassion, and he sacrificed himself for us. You see, God reveals himself to us in Jesus, because Jesus is God. Jesus claimed to be more than a man. His own words. Consider these statements that he makes during his earthly ministry. John chapter 14, verse 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's quite a bold statement. Jesus blatantly saying, I am God. He said other times, I am He. Luke 24, verse 7. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man, men and be crucified and on the third day Rise. The Son of Man is a title that Jesus often refers to himself as. John chapter 8, verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who is this man? A question that Jesus' disciples also asked, and something that we've been looking at uh, uh, during our Wednesday night Bible class. Who is this man who makes such bold claims? C.S. Lewis called this a trilemma. Jesus is either Lord, as he claims to be, or he is a lunatic, or he is a liar. Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote, uh, well, he said, and it was wrote down in the book, Mere Christianity. I am here trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. I'll stop right there. Let's go back to Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, right? And uh, C.S. Lewis is, is echoing that. It is foolish to say, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. He says, that is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, and you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fraud, and consequently, however, strange or terrifying or unlikely that it may seem, I have, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Now I'll remind you, if you don't know the history of C.S. Lewis, he once was an atheist. Lewis alludes to, towards the end of that quote, to the proof that one needs. He says, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, or you can kill him. You see, that's what people did. But God can't be killed. But they killed Jesus. But God can't be killed. Look at Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31. Paul said, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by doing what? Raising Him from the dead. They killed the man, Jesus, but they did not kill God. He was raised again and walked to a newness of life. That's not some of us. That's not something... We could just go and do. It's not something any man could just go and do. Because Jesus was raised, we have salvation. We have the church. We have new and changed lives. And we have the promise of eternity with Him. All because of a man who went from the cradle to the cross. And then from there he went from the grave to glory through resurrection. 
You see, the one who said, John three sixteen through 17 For God so loved the world, He came out of the grave and He displayed what kind of God He is. So the question that often accompanies the question of what kind of God is this? What kind of God is this that lets all these bad things happen in this world? What kind of God is this that created the world and then would let bad things happen in it and to it? What kind of God is this? The question that often accompanies that is, is there any hope for me? To understand this, we first need to understand that Jesus came as a baby. He didn't come as a tyrant. He didn't come as a loudmouth. Well, he was a baby. He was probably loudmouth at some point. But he didn't come as a loudmouth man walking through the streets and declaring, Down with Rome! He came as a baby. He experienced the same struggles and the stresses and frustrations and temptations and problems that we face today. He didn't come down as a man and start taking over and setting up his kingdom. He grew up in the world. And not only did he grow up in the world and was born as a baby, he also experienced death. Something that we will experience as well. Now let's think about the reality. The reality that we live in. Some of us feel like we struggle more than others. We feel like the problems that we have are problems that nobody else has experienced or nobody else knows how to help us with. Some of us have lost loved ones in our lives. Some of us uh, have uh, health problems. We're struggling with health problems or we know people who are struggling with health problems. We know people or maybe we are ourselves struggling with fertility problems. Some of us struggle with stress, with anxiety, with forgiving others. That's a big one. Some of us struggle with forgiving ourselves. You see, these are all spiritual and physical and mental struggles that we all deal with. And these are all things that Jesus encountered Himself. Some of us are single and feel lonely. Some of us may be married and feel lonely. Sometimes life seems hopeless. Sometimes the situation that we're in seems hopeless. But the good news, the gospel, the good news is there is hope. Remember, God gave so that we could have everlasting life. God did that. Realistically, there will be heartache, there will be disease, there will be death, there will be pain, there will be sorrow. That's the world. But the hope that Jesus says, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-5, through 5, He talks about the new life, the new body. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, He's talking about the body. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Do you do that? Do you groan about the body that you have and the life that you're living, the pain that you feel? 
But when you groan about it, are you actually longing for heaven? Are you longing for the time in which Jesus returns? Or are you just disappointed with the body that you have? Verse 3, If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. If you look at Revelation 21, verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, in Christ, the promise, the hope, is that all that pain, all that suffering, all those things that we feel, the spiritual, the physical, the mental things that we struggle with in this world are gone in heaven. Another hope that Jesus gives us is in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. He says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's with us. John 11, verses 25 through 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's not me asking that question. That's Jesus asking that question. Do you believe this? Someone said, uh, and I actually have the quote here, Bill Bright said this. He said, Life without God is a hopeless end, but life with God is an endless hope. I want to close out this morning with a few more scriptures to help us see the truth of this beautiful statement. Romans, we're going to spend a couple, a couple minutes here in Romans. Starting in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 3 through 5 of that. If you're a person who likes to have motivational statements to read around your house on post-it notes or 3 by 5 cards, that's something that needs to be written down and read every day. Romans 5, 3 through 5. I'm going to read it again. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How can someone rejoice in suffering? Well, he says, because suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You know, as I read that again, I'm reminded of what Nick is about to go through. Boot camp. Basic training. Suffering produces endurance. 
Nick's been having to run a lot to get to a certain goal. That's been a suffer, hasn't it? But it produces endurance. And endurance produces character. That's what they try to build in military training. Right, Clint? Yeah. Right? <laughs> but the suffering that, that Paul's talking about is the suffering of life. The pain, the hardship, the difficult things that we have to endure. Because suffering through them produces endurance. And it builds up our character. And it pushes us toward hope. Romans chapter 8, verses 24 through 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is, not, uh, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Romans 12, verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Colossians 1, verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, all this, all this talk about hope, all these words about hope, they all point back to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is our hope, and He has gone before us and He has paved the path, and He has done so through His blood. What kind of God is He? For God so loved the world, that happened in Bethlehem, that He gave His only begotten Son, that happened at Calvary, that whoever believes in Him, that's detailing salvation there, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That is eternity. You see, there is hope. Where are you putting your hope? Are you putting your hope in yourself? Are you putting your hope in the world? Or maybe others? If your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, then your future, your eternity, that's your focus. It should be your focus. The problem all too often, though, is that we place our hope elsewhere, and that's why we feel hopeless. Because those other things, if we build our hope on those things, that's like the sandy soil. That when the water comes in, washes it away. Because when, you're, when your hope is built on anything except Jesus then the trials and temptations that you face in life, those don't build you up towards anything. Because the hope that you're supposed to be building towards is Christ and your eternal salvation. If you believe, you know, we, I asked the question earlier, as Jesus did, John chapter 11, verse 26, do you believe? 
If you believe, then obey. Repent and be baptized today. It's what God requires of you. It's what Jesus requires of you. Building your hope on Christ means obeying Him and following Him. If you need the prayers of the church, or if you have any other need that we can assist you with this morning, be it through prayer or study, or if, we'd, if you'd like us to assist you in baptism, we can do that as well this morning. If we can help you in any way, won't you come now while we stand and sing?